to see the autograph of those professional wrestlers that we talked about. And uh, I'm sorry I can't produce that. Uh, they, they probably went the same way that the, all the old baseball cards that I had. I had a Phil Rizzuto rookie card. He was a, a New York Yankee during the era of Mickey Mantle and some of the other greats. And, and uh, I remember putting it on my bicycle spokes to make it go And today that same card is worth thousands of dollars. Mine isn't. Mine's long gone. But uh, anyway, uh, now don't go home and look through all your old shoe boxes and in the corners and crevices for things like that because what makes collectibles valuable is their rarity. So if you never find yours, that'll make somebody else rich. Just look at it that way. You're doing somebody a great big favor. We have just sung, His name is wonderful, Jesus my Lord. And He is wonderful in all seriousness. Uh, this morning's message, if it touched nobody else, it touched my heart. And I'm very thankful that the Word of God is alive and powerful and sharper than a two-edged sword. And I'm glad that uh, I know that uh, when we stop struggling and we hand over our sword, the sword of our flesh, that finally the Lord can start doing something with us like He did with Jacob, who became Israel, Prince with God. Last Sunday night, we were right here, and we sang, Dare to be a Daniel. And I preached from Daniel chapter 11 on uh, people that do know their God, that do exploits. And uh, I'm telling you, uh, these were special people, but they were just like we are. They put together exactly the way we're put together. They were common, ordinary people. They were people of conviction and people of commitment as we preached last Sunday night. And I'm glad that, once again, uh, that had something to do with folks making decisions this week to serve the Lord. Folks got out, got busy, served the Lord, did wonderfully well this weekend. Praise God. Let's do it again. Amen. Let's do it again. You say, why? Well, as we're going to sing a little bit later, it's because Jesus never fails. And we've got a hymn in our hymnal by that title. And uh, uh, I remember the, the popular Christian song that was sung back in the 70s. Jesus never fails. Same theme, a little different tune. But the message is the same. We can depend on the Lord to do these things through us because of who He is and because of whose we are. We belong to Him. And He is in the business of from, from, uh, from eternity to eternity, you know. He's changing us. He is he's, uh, from grace to grace, from glory to glory. He is uh, changing us and working in us and for us and through us for His glory. Yes, His name is wonderful. Now, the scripture that we have read tonight, as I said, is most often thought of as a Christmas passage. But in context, you know that the people of God in the Old Testament had their challenges uh, internal, uh, their challenges uh, in straying from the one true God. They had external challenges as well. And they were getting down to the end of their history. They were just about played out. The northern tribes would go into captivity, and then the southern tribes would follow them into captivity to learn a hard lesson. But way off beyond 
what was going to happen in the immediate future, the prophets could see something glorious happening in the future. Uh, it was explained to me in Bible college, Tom, as being like mountain peaks and valleys between them. The ages and the prophecy having to do with the future was like looking from mountaintop to mountaintop. Now, uh, on the other side of the mountain, there's a valley. And on the other side of the next mountaintop, there's a valley. You can't always see what's in between. So sometimes the prophecy would have to do with uh, the millennial reign of Jesus Christ, eternity, future, and so forth. And that's glorious. That's wonderful. Because of that, some people don't rightly divide the word of truth. They will try to apply um, the millennium scriptures, the thousand-year reign of Christ, to today's age of grace. And those people are involved in great social and governmental efforts, and they're trying to apply scripture to it and uh, get God's stamp of approval as if they somehow have enough authority. There's not enough authority uh, among all the citizens of all the countries of all the worlds that want to do right. There's not enough authority on the human side right now to force righteousness to take place. So the, all, the, all the people who are of that particular persuasion, there's a, a group of professing believers who believe that, that right now in this age of grace that we can make everybody conform to the Bible. That's not going to happen. It's all right for you to try to influence your neighbors and, and to vote right, and it's all right for you to try to run for office and, and uh, try to institute principles of righteousness in your legislation. But until King Jesus comes back to rule and reign, your problem, just to put it in the metaphor that I have given you, your problem is there's a couple of mountain ranges between you and it. Hadn't happened yet. Now, we do have some prophecies of the first coming of Christ. And Jesus Christ did not come the first time to rule and reign except in men's hearts. Jesus Christ came the first time to seek and to save the lost and to die for lost sinners. And I'm so glad that he has. Amen. So in his first advent, his first coming, Christmas, let's just call it that, Jesus came to be born as a babe in Bethlehem the sinless Son of God. And, and, uh, and we know about that now because we have hindsight. Hindsight is 2020. But those prophets and those who try to interpret the prophets may not always rightly divide the word of truth. Put down 2 Timothy 2.15. Study to show thyself approved unto God, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth, and learn your dispensations. Get a book on dispensational theology uh, by, written by moderate dispensationalists, not hyper-dispensationalists, and that's who we agree with. We, we view the ages uh, of past and present and future through that particular prism. We understand, and that's rightly dividing the word of truth. You cannot impose Old Testament law on grace age, church age people. When you do that, you have legalism, 
and you have Galatianism, and you have a problem with that. You cannot try to apply millennium thousand-year reign prophecy on grace church-age people because then you have social do-goodism. You have socialism. You have so-called Christian socialism. Uh, that The only difference between it and communism is with communism, you got a gun to put to their head. But that's socialism is the same thing as communism, but without the gun. All right, you see what I'm saying? we got to be careful. And a lot of people will take scriptures out of context, and so you get a lot of weird interpretations. Our goal is to help you and to help ourselves to be Bible believers and Bible behaviors and understand the scripture and not come out with scriptures. Man, if, if I never ever run into another um, church member who comes maybe from another background and they want to impose Old Testament law on me, I just tell them, you know, just either forget all that stuff, let's go through uh, reorientation and unlearn all that junk or go on down the road and find yourself a Galatian church because it's not going to work here. It's not going to work. We believe in free grace. Amen. Amen. So we are looking in Isaiah chapter 9 at the first advent of Jesus Christ first. For unto us a child is born. and We understand what a child is is a child is the product of a man, one man, one woman coming together. A child is conceived, and after nine months of gestation or thereabouts, the child uh, is given birth to by the mother. And that's what happens in this case, except the way this child started is different. There is no human daddy. Unto us a, a child is born, unto us a son is given. As I have taught you every Christmas, the son is given conditions the child is born. The son is given means the son already pre-exists. Now, nobody else pre-exists. You and I began the moment we were conceived inside of our mothers. We didn't begin in eternity past. There aren't a bunch of little spirit babies up in some place some in, in heaven or something waiting to get bodies. This is the false teaching of Mormonism, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, so-called, falsely so-called, started by Joseph Smith, based upon a, a fantastic uh, fictional novel that he found in the trash and uh, said it was, the, uh, it was from Moroni, the angel, and that, that is established fact. We already know that. Uh, Joseph Smith was a notorious liar and con man in his day. He just stole somebody's manuscript in the trash can in a printer's office, and he made that, you know, the Book of Mormon. So that's what you get. When you're getting the Book of Mormon, you are receiving stolen goods. I don't know if you knew that, but there you go. We'll be, the police will be around to collect them. All right, there you go. All right, the... Um, the fact is there are no spirit babies up in heaven. Now, my understanding also is that that is the emphasis, the philosophy of Catholicism as well. They want as many babies born, so hence no controlling the number of children. 
That's, that's what's behind all of that. And that philosophy is based not in truth or in Scripture, but is based upon a misunderstanding. Jesus Christ gives us the only example of a son that's given. He is the eternal son of God. You're going to find that language in your King James Bible. You will not find it in your false translations. Anything that's based on the bad manuscripts of Westcott and Hort, which are the basis of the 1881 revised version of England, the 1901 and finally the, the 1960-something version of the American Standard Version, and every other English translation, at least in part, is based on the bad manuscripts, the corrupted manuscripts, the Alexandrian manuscripts, and uh, only the King James Bible gives us it straight. Jesus Christ is the eternal Son of God. He always was, always will be. See, now how can he be the eternal Son of God before he was born? He was the Son of God from the beginning that wasn't a beginning. He never had a beginning. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. The Trinity, the triunity of God. In this week's Sword of the Lord newspaper, we have question and answer to Dr. John R. Rice, who's now in heaven. Uh, this, but this was asked before he died. Do you know any group that does not believe in the Trinity? And then he goes on to say, the Christian science teaching is the theory of three persons of God. Trinity suggests polytheism. That means more than one God. So he's saying Christian science is wrong. Spiritualism is wrong. Jehovah's Witnesses is wrong. Armstrongism is wrong. The Jesus-only denomination. How many of you know one of those? Apostolic or Jesus-only. All right? They're non-Trinitarian. All right, that is, that's heresy, that's wrong. Doesn't, does, I'm not saying bad things about these people, but the Jesus-only denomination rejects the doctrine of the Trinity and baptizes only in the name of Jesus Christ. They insist there is no God but Jesus, that Jesus did not have a Father in heaven, and that there is no Holy Spirit separate from Jesus. But if you read your Bible, just read it straight out and take it as it is at face value, you know that there are three persons. One essence, one God, three persons. As we taught the children in five o'clock hour years ago, what you say to people when they say, well, you, you can't possibly believe that because you can't understand it. And the children were taught to say, even though my head can't receive all of that to understand it, my heart can believe it. That's it. And we believe what God says. There it is. The Trinity simply means that we have one God in three persons. Dr. Walter Wilson illustrated the Trinity this way. Write this down. This is good to tell people. There is one firm but three officers, the president, vice president, and treasurer. <laughs> there are not three firms but just one. There are not three firms but just one firm with one bank account, one character, one advertising program, one building, housing, the firm, etc. Each officer, however, is an executive separate from the other two. Those who call to see the firm may see any one of the three persons, for all three work in unity and harmony. The work of each does, not, uh, does reveal that they are three distinct persons. All right, there you have it. Other than that, it's impossible for us to understand it. Or to explain it, you might say, well, an egg, you've got, you know, you've got the shell, you've got the white, you've got the yolk. Yeah, 
I know you got three parts. You got water, you got steam, you've got ice, three different forms. Yeah, you've got that too. Or you've got a piece of pie which you cut into three, kind of hard to cut into three pieces, but you know, uh, or a pizza pie or whatever. You want to be, you know, real contemporary. Um, it doesn't matter what illustration you come up with, you're still not going to completely wrap your brain around something you just simply believe. By faith, we accept it, we believe. When we get to heaven, we'll know better than we know now. All right, so, so as I'm going to point out tonight, when the Scripture describes our Savior, Jesus Christ, who came in the way that He does, it's in view of the fact that a child was born, so the, for the first time he gets a body, a sinless body, but he has always pre-existed because he's God. And the government shall be upon his shoulder. Nobody else in history has been so uh, involved with and has so affected governments as Jesus Christ. Even though he never led a government on earth yet. He has affected every government that's on the planet. Everybody, either by, by the dates that we use to determine, you know, or by something, uh, there is an effect, an impact that Jesus Christ has had upon government. Government shall be upon his shoulders. Name shall be called. Here it is. Wonderful counselor. Now, understand, in the Hebrew, there are no commas. And so there are preachers today who will make a big deal out of Wonderful Counselor being one composite. We have five different tips on this star, the star of Bethlehem. Wonderful Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. All right? And some have just said he's a wonderful counselor, saying that wonderful describes what kind of counselor he is. Well, let's talk about that. What kind of counselor is he? We know that he is the advocate with the Father. We know that Jesus Christ stands up for his own. He stands up to oppose the devil, and uh, he stands up for us. We know that he is the comforter who said he would send another comforter of the same kind, the Holy Spirit. We know what kind of a counselor he is. The Bible says in the multitude of counselors, there's, there's wisdom, strength, you know, and and everything good. Well, that's true. I believe that really refers to 66 books of the Bible. Let's take all the Word of God and take it all in context. And in the multitude of counselors, we're going to get the right answers. That's true. But the one capital C counselor, the one who is there for us all the time, is the Lord Jesus Christ. I prayed this morning with Tom and the prayer groups in there. And, uh, I don't know why I said it, Tom, it just came to mind. I said, Lord, thank you for hearing our prayers and answering, and we don't have to stand in line. We don't have to be left on, on hold, waiting. Aren't you sick and tired of being on hold? I hate it. Absolutely hate it. I'm going to place you on hold. Well, don't even ask me, okay? All right. Our counselor is always available, 24 Seven. So he is a wonderful counselor. But I don't necessarily agree with those interpreters who say, you got to drop that comma. I, I love the old KJV. I, I like even the people that say, well, you know, this verse ought to be with... No, in view of the previous chapter. I wouldn't chop anything up differently. 
I'm not going to get into an argument, cat and dog fight with you over, you know, things such as the numbering of verses and the division of chapters and so on and where did Cain get his wife and, uh, you know, all of those sort of things. That's, that's silliness. That does, not, uh, that does not make for peace. That just engenders strife and causes people... Do you know people that use the Bible to start arguments and fights? Do you know people like that? You know what they need? A lot of prayer. That's what they need. They, they, need, they need to just let them go and have their own fight, their own debate. They're capable of doing both sides. So let them fight with themselves, all right? And don't you even participate. We don't have to win every debate. All we have to do is win people to Jesus. Our emphasis is on that very thing. When we're dealing with people of Islamic background, people of cultic backgrounds or whatever, our goal is not to demean them and defeat them in debate, but rather to win them to Jesus Christ. That will always be our goal. All right, so his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, the Mighty God. Now, Jesus is the Mighty God. Now, over in the prophets, we have numerous scriptures that, that show that the one who died in Jerusalem is the one who is the mighty God. And so there is no, there's no question about it that, that he came and he's God in a human body. And he is the mighty God. He is the everlasting father. He said in John chapter 10, I and my father are one. And he is the prince of peace. And uh, that's a wonderful study in and of itself. The prince of peace means that he is, you talk about top of the heap, number one, he is, he is our tranquilizer. He is, a, he, I mean, better than any, what you get in a bottle or get in a needle or, or, or take, you know, over the counter or what, whatever it is. He is the prince of peace. He is our tranquilizer. Now, the next verse, of the increase of his government, peace, there shall be no end. That, of course, is looking past to the next mountain. Upon the throne of David and upon his kingdom to order to establish it with judgment, with justice. Not from the first advent, but the second. From henceforth, even forever, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. We'll bring every bit of that to pass. That's it. We used to sing a little chorus. Uh, it goes, Jesus is wonderful. Jesus is mine. He is the one that I love. And I love that, just like we sang Audrey Meyer's great song, His Name is Wonderful. Personalizing the Scripture is so very important. If you can do that without doing damage to the Scripture itself, personalize it. Every time you're reading the Scripture, make it me, my, mine. Make it personal. Because Jesus is wonderful, but not just by statement, not just as though we have taken this to a court of law and before a jury of our peers, we have argued our case that Jesus is wonderful. I, I believe that it, were I trained in proper uh, court decorum, jurisprudence, I could probably be a lawyer, but that's not my goal tonight. I would rather be like a mutual friend who says to my friend, I'd like to introduce you to my friend Jesus. That's it. That's the difference. 
When it comes to winning this lost world to Christ, they don't need another attorney. What they need is a friend introducing their common friend, their mutual friend. Amen. Amen. Jesus is wonderful. He is spoken of in the seventh chapter as Emmanuel. Emmanuel. Over in Matthew chapter 1, we find what that refers to. That prophecy is to the fact that Jesus Christ is God in a body. He came and He became a man. We can't totally understand that. But if we go back to the first name that's ascribed to Him, He's wonderful. Let's think about that. That's more than just saying, man, He's great. He's fantastic. He is. You could say He's wonderful and mean. He's great. He's fantastic. Oh, He's so good to me. I, I just enjoy Him so much. I enjoy the Lord. I enjoy the Lord. How about you? I, I was enjoying Him today. When I, when I sing gospel music, I really enjoy the Lord. And I was able to write bits and pieces of four new gospel songs today. So I really was enjoying the Lord this afternoon, having a good time with Jesus. But when we say Jesus is wonderful, that is far more than just saying, boy, I enjoy Him, though we do. What does it truly mean? It means that Jesus, by His coming, as God in a human body, God in human flesh but without sin, was full of wonder and is full of wonder. He inspires wonder and awe in us. When we take time, when we make proper time to behold Him. How many of you have ever seen a picture of the Empire State Building? Everybody has. How many of you have seen a picture taken from maybe an airplane flying by the Empire State Building, all 107 floors in view? Yes. How many of you have had the privilege of going up Empire State Building? Anybody? Okay. Now, you took the elevator, didn't you? <laughs> Only most of the way up. Most of the way up. Okay, that's a lot of steps all the way to the top. And it's very impressive. You get to the top, and I, I understand that it literally takes your breath away. Did you get to the observation deck? Did you? Takes your breath away. You can see for how many miles? Just miles and miles and miles and miles. You can see several states, I believe. And I haven't had the privilege, but I have flown over it a number of times. Look down and I've seen all 107. But I've never been at the base of it looking up saying, <laughs> wow. Now, if you've ever been there, you know that that is awe-inspiring. Now, why? Because people have taken time to visit and behold and try to take in the best a human being can the Empire State Building, which is so huge. The same could be said of Jesus Christ. There are some people, it's just like uh, that accident today, hit and run, hit and run. How many times have we run into people out on visitation to Quan? 
and say, oh yeah, I went to church, I've been to church, yeah, oh yeah, I prayed that prayer, yeah. Haven't darkened the door of the church since then. Now, I'm not going to judge their salvation, but you know what? They haven't taken time to stand at the base of that thing and behold and take in in awe and wonder just how big, how fantastic. And that's what it is with Jesus Christ. If people would take the time, make the time to appropriately come to church, to get into their Bible, to start to read through the Bible, to organize their Bible study, to spend time in the Word. It would be like trying to take in the Empire State Building, and it would be so wonderful, full of wonder, so awe-inspiring. We would say it would be amazing beyond compare. I watched something amazing. I was not there either in 1960 or 1980 when the American hockey team beat the Russians or beat whoever it was they beat for the gold medal. They say that was the miracle, Lake Placid. You know, that was the miracle. Not hardly a miracle. Amazing, yes, but not as amazing as Jesus Christ. I was in Wakoda Arena. That, that was the the skating venue at the base of uh, the, the little hill below where we lived in South St. Paul, Minnesota. And we had, we had a great hockey team. But when the teams from northern Minnesota would come down, those boys would get off their bus after an eight-hour ride from the Iron Range up there that stays frozen, frozen tundra for like ten months out of the year. Those boys skate year-round. They learn to skate before they learn to walk. And they play hockey with the same eight kids, nine kids, ten kids for their entire career. When they got off the bus, there were half as many on the bench. You know, my high school was famous for hockey. Uh, you had to work to make to make the, the, the fourth bunch, you know, to get, even get on the ice would, would be, you know, just the very best thing that could ever happen if you could. I couldn't skate. I've told you the story about my non-skating uh, career. But when those guys got off the bus from the Northern Range, from places like International Falls, Rosso, Virginia, Minnesota, places like that, Grand Rapids, not Michigan, but Minnesota. They got off the bus, half as many. And they looked like they had been working out forever. I don't know if it aged them or whatever. But there was a team from Virginia, Minnesota that came down to play us. We were the reigning champions. And as soon as they got on the ice, all five, ten thousand of us in that stadium in that arena, we knew we were in trouble. Those guys were going up and down the ice. Oh, my. Oh, my. They were handling the puck. It was all over the place. We got out on the ice. I was watching from the side. Some of my friends were out there, guys who were in school with me. And it was like, it was like a slaughter. Three zip at the end of the first period. Three zip the other guys. Something happened. 
between the first and second period. There are three periods in ice hockey. Something happened between the first and second period. They came out, they played better. They came out for the third period, and our boys went out there, and having spotted them, three zip, came back and scored four in a row. We felt something happening, but that's not a miracle either. I'll tell you what a miracle is. His name is Jesus. That's it. His miracle birth, the very fact that God would come, and 100% God, 100% man, you say, that's illogical. You're right. It's illogical, but it's true. That's not 200%. That's still 100%. He is totally God. He is totally man. And Philippians 2, 5 and on down to the end of the chapter helps us to understand a little bit more about Jesus becoming a man and thought it not robbery uh, to be equal with God, but took on a upon himself the form of a servant and uh, was made in the likeness of man. That helps us with the mystery. It doesn't, it doesn't give us a complete understanding, but it helps us with the mystery. When I read this, when it says he's wonderful, and people tend to dumb that down and say, yes, he's, boy, he's really, he's neat, he's keen, he's great, he's faithful, whatever term they use. Jesus really cool, you know, whatever they say about Jesus. That doesn't cover it. I like what Lanny Wolf wrote and, and what Larnell sang. He's more than wonderful. He's more than wonderful. He exceeds our fondest dreams and expectations. He will surprise us and bless us and thrill us from now until he calls us home and then it won't stop. It'll be thrilling and exciting and I believe the Lord's going to let us continue to feel that thrill and that excitement when we're around the Lord Jesus Christ for all eternity. He's more than wonderful. We'll still be feeling those shivers up and down our spine when we're casting our crowns at his feet, you talk about a champion. It's not just winning the hockey championship. It's not just winning the whatever sports, you know, championship. That's not it. It's Jesus Christ, our Savior, for all eternity. Think about that. You talk about a standing O on top of a standing O on top of a standing O. For all eternity, it will, that thrill is going to be so strong. There is no question when people say, what are we going to do for all eternity? Won't it be kind of boring? We will have the privilege of serving the Lamb for all eternity. I plan to have chills up and down my spine for all eternity. Glory to God when I think about it. He's more than wonderful. He's more than wonderful in his pre-incarnation before he came and then being conceived of the Holy Ghost inside of the Virgin Mary nine months later being born in the ordinary way, very unordinary baby, being born the Son of God, God the Son. He comes into the world and Mary is holding in her arms the newborn babe, God in a body. That gives me chills. That excites me. That's what my God did to save my unworthy, undeserving soul from hell, which I deserve to go to for all eternity. 
little baby. That little baby didn't save me. That baby grew up to be Jesus Christ of Nazareth, the Son of God and God the Son. He's more than wonderful in His incarnation. He's more than wonderful after they crucified Him. He allowed it. After they laid His body in the tomb, having, having dismissed His own spirit, and then coming back into that body and rising up from the dead. Oh my, what a time that must have been out there at that tomb with that great stone and the Roman seal upon it rolled in front of the door, the, the entryway of, the, of that tomb. All of a sudden it begins to quake and shake and light comes out and that stone's rolled away and out comes Jesus, risen. And then in his glorified body to the right hand of the Father where he ever makes intercession for you and me. He's a wonderful counselor, but he's wonderful. He's more than wonderful. He is amazing. He transcends every bit of amazement that we might feel toward anybody or anything else. Oh, I met so-and-so, the celebrity. I met so-and-so, the... Uh, the athlete, I met so-and-so, the famous uh, personality. You could roll all of them into one and it wouldn't come close. I met Jesus on June the 17th, 1955. And I've never been the same. And if I'd known then, as a little boy, not quite six years of age, what I know now about what Jesus Christ did in my behalf and what God did uh, because of Jesus being on the account, did for me for all eternity, you'd still be peeling me off the ceiling. He's more than wonderful. He's wonderful. Put it down. In his person. He's unique. We can pray to God the Father. We can name Jesus we can name the Holy Spirit. It's all right. <laughs> That's God in three persons. That's all right. But think how there would be something, someone lacking, if there weren't a Jesus Christ. Let's put it another way. What if he hadn't come? What if he didn't come, Tom? We'd be sitting here trying to figure out how to be good enough to get to God. And we would have to conclude, sadly, there is no way. People are still trying to crawl on their hands and knees up the steps in Rome to, to achieve something. They're, they're going through all kinds of, of self-denial, monasticism, to try to, to reach reach up to God some way. There is no way we could ever reach up to God. God had to reach down to you and me, and He reached down, way down. He came way down when Jesus came down and took our place. He's wonderful in His person. I've told you about the old man in the first pastorate that we had in Dalton, Wisconsin. His son was in our church and asked us to go visit this man who had been a charter member way back when of the church, but now was in a care facility some miles away. 
and he was about to pass on, and he was losing his mind. And I don't even remember his name, if it was Bob or Bill or Harry or Ted or what it was, but we drove there, and it was kind of spooky. The wind was blowing, and the, the big old structure looked like one of those houses, you know. But we went in, and we found him. And I began to speak to him, and I spoke of his son. He says, I don't remember. And we spoke of the church and the town. He says, I don't remember. I went through all the things. I don't remember. He said, I felt so hopeless. And then I spoke of Jesus. And he said, oh, I remember Jesus. He'd forgotten everything else, but he remembered Jesus. How can you ever forget? The character of a man is what and who we truly are inside. When Jesus Christ was on earth, he called himself the Son of Man. His relationship is in view there to us, the fallen race, the human race. But he escaped the corruption himself by being born of a virgin. And so he was human yet divine. That's wonderful that he identified with us. Secondly, he's wonderful in his compassion. I would say his passion, but people think about the passion of the Christ. They think about the movie. They think about Mel Gibson. They think about some of the Catholicism that was involved in that. Some of the grueling uh, uh, scenes that were in that and they think of passion uh, uh, as the uh, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. But I think of the compassion of our Savior Jesus Christ. He's wonderful. He is facing this death on Calvary, separated from God the Father and God the Holy Spirit because he who knew no sin would become the sin offering. He is facing that and yet he, he wept. He wept over Jerusalem, said, oh, Jerusalem. He, he, saw, he saw the people as sheep scattered without a shepherd. He had compassion and pity as, as a father pitieth his children. He, he pitied and loved. God commendeth his love toward us in that yet while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He loved us so much we will never be able to understand that love. We know that only that great love would cause Him to leave heaven and its perfection to save us. He knew the sacrifice that would come with the incarnation. He knew that incarnation in itself represented a sacrifice for Him to leave sinlessness to come down where all around him were sinners sinning all the time. He grew up in a home of people, yes, who loved him as, as a family member, but every other one of them was different. Every other one of them was a sinner, and he was the only one who was not. Came unto his own, and his own received him not. Took upon himself the form of a servant made in the likeness of men. He still has that body only glorified. He is wonderful in His person, in His passion. He is wonderful in His passing. I'm talking about His death. God cannot die. But we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels, for the suffering of death, 
that he by the grace of God should taste death for every man, it says in the book of Hebrews. God can't die, but Jesus Christ as the God-man did die. Although his death, his death was, Satan thought, his victory, it was his defeat. He died voluntarily. He said, no man taketh my life from me. I give it up of myself. He laid down his life at exactly the right time, the fullness of the time. He died in our place. He was wonderful in person, wonderful in passion, wonderful in passing, and he's wonderful in his purpose. For the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. The one who was despised and rejected of men has had more influence upon society, upon government, morality, no matter what, you, what, what you're considering tonight in the way of the venue. Jesus Christ has had more influence than any other individual, and rightly so. Neither is there salvation in any other, for there is none other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. He is the only one. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me exclusively. He is the only way. The only way. He is a wonderful Savior. He is the one and only one. The question is, while this is all true in principle, I'm not trying to prove this in a court of law. I'm saying, let's introduce him as our best friend to all of our other friends. Let's befriend people to introduce them to our friend. Let's reach out to other people. Well, I'll just give them, I'll give them this verse and that verse and that verse, and yes, it's powerful, I know. But how about on the way Let's be that loving channel of blessing whereby God's love can be seen and felt and experienced by others. Let's love folks to Jesus. Amen? Let's do that. Let's bow our heads and close our eyes. Every head bowed, every eye closed, nobody looking tonight. And how many of you would say, Preacher, something in that message spoke to my heart. Slip your hand up high. Spoke to my heart tonight. Amen. I trust that we'll do something about it as we sing the invitation hymn in just a moment. We'll give you the opportunity to come from where you are, have a word of prayer. And if you'd like to come and receive Jesus Christ, or you'd like to be saved right now, for whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord, that wonderful name. Pray right now, Lord Jesus, come in my heart, save my soul, take away my sins, and take me to heaven when I die. 